Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, a culture critic for Slate, and joining me today are Michael Agger, a Slate editor and writer. Hello, Michael. Hello. And Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic, among other things. Hey, Megan. Today, we are discussing a book I'm really excited to talk about, Tom McCarthy's Remainder. It is, what can we say about Remainder? I'm flipping the pages here. Um, It's the story of a man who has suffered an accident and becomes preoccupied well he suffers an accident he is granted a settlement a very large settlement and he's preoccupied for a while with that word settlement and yeah. sort of enunciates the t in it of eight and a half million pounds is this correct yeah it's Otto e mezzo in fellini's italian mm. Wonderful. (laughs) And becomes preoccupied, debates what he's going to do with this money, and becomes preoccupied with creating reenactments, or or rather enactments that become reenactments. And they're, what can we say about these enactments and reenactments? They're, they're designed to elicit a feeling that he gets every now and then, this kind of tingling feeling. It's the starts actually when he first thinks about the moment before the accident that he had. He remembers the feeling of the wind around him and a kind of buzzing, tingling feeling comes over him. And then he he experiences another version of this looking at the crack in a bathroom at a friend's party or an acquaintance's party. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess one thing we should mention about the accident is that he, the protagonist, I, I guess he's never really named, um, he loses the ability to kind of do the most basic motions of life. So he he talks about having to sort of relearn how to walk or how to open the door. Or and so, you know, part of the spur of the um, the reenactments is to to try to do things sort of naturally again. And the the crack in the in the wall that you're referring to, you know, that eventually becomes a crack that's contained within this sort of vast apartment house structure. That uh, you know, the narrator feels that if he if he can recreate this space with all the money that he now has, you know, he might be able to move. Um, and here, I'm going to mention the key word of this entire dis- discussion. He might be able to move authentically yes. uh, in this space without kind of too much pre-thought and, and uh, self-consciousness, and he could just kind of sort of be in the moment. And and I think that that sort of 
sort of being in the moment seems to be connected to the spine tingling. Is that is that what you guys picked up in the book? Yes. Go yeah. ahead, try. Well, I think he sort of falls into the crack, doesn't he? <laughs> um, and, well, I think the, the important thing to me about that sort of first moment where he has this uh, sort of spasm of a vision of wanting to sort of recreate this sort of moment in a dream or is it wait is it a dream or is it just sort of a deja vu sense he's seen this crack before and it he falls into it and it opens up this whole vision of uh his living in an apartment and there's such a view across the way and there's a pianist downstairs making errors as he plays Rachmaninoff and a lady making liver mm-hmm. so one way of thinking about things is that this whole bizarre scenario is a quest for sort of a quest to achieve some kind of authenticity or to get to something that he's lost. Yeah. I think that... I'm sorry. I feel like I just cut you off. <laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. I was just trying to decide if it would be um, sort of fruitful to talk about Freud's idea of what deja vu was, which is that it's... Um, these things are triggered by unconscious fantasies, right? And so on Sunday night when I was in the kitchen making lentil beans and had this sharp sense of deja vu. It wasn't about sort of the the lentil beans. It was about sort of uh, having slipped into some sort of emotional state or not quite remembered something that, uh, who knows, that the smell evoked. I think both the Freud model and then the, there's the biological model that I've heard that um, it's one part of your brain catching up with the other part of your brain. That, that that's what deja vu is you know there's this both of those seem useful to me in thinking about this book and and its preoccupations and and michael i'm glad you brought up authenticity because that absolutely seems like one of the preeminent preoccupations of the book i mean it's it's sort of it's it seems to me that the book is in in many ways throughout struggling with the question of sort of Origins too, right? And there is a way of uh, preoccupation with going backward, as you're saying, like looking back for that moment. And I think maybe reading just the very first paragraph would be useful here. On page three, he says, about the accident itself, I can say very little, almost nothing. It involved something falling from the sky, technology, parts, bits. That's it, really. All I can divulge. Not much, I know. And that that paragraph becomes sort of an aesthetic model for the rest of the book and for what McCarthy seems to be up to, which is this way of kind of deconstructing. Um, Zadie Smith called it constructive deconstruction in her article about this book and Joseph O'Neill's Netherland in the New York Review of Books that part of McCarthy's project is this avant-garde project to get away from what, what Zadie Smith was calling the lyric realism of the novel and to draw attention to the act of construction that is writing in of itself. So there's that whole level. And then on the level of plot, there's this obsession, as you said, Michael, with getting back to the natural. This is the kind of book, it strikes me, that could seem very kind of theoretical and theorized and brainy. You know, it's trying to be a kind of new novel in the sense of Alain Robegrier and, and others. But I found it deeply enjoyable to read. And actually, one of the first questions I wanted to ask is just, did you enjoy this novel? I did. It's very smooth. There's not an ounce of fat on it. And it has a daydream-like quality that fits perfectly with the character's situation. He's sort of, sort of brain-damaged, and he's kind of interested in this eerie project. It's also a book that's more patterned, I think, than plotted. Uh, the Alain Robegrier was a 
apt reference. And in that patterning, it's um, there's a kind of level of physical detail in the way that he traces things that works well as sort of a reflection of the character's attempt to recover himself to a degree, to learn how to move again and pick up a carrot and to rework the circuitry of his head. You know, one thing I would say about the about this novel as uh, sort of an experience or an experiment in deconstruction, uh, I would uh, alert anyone who hasn't read it not to be scared off by that... Uh, yeah. By that judgment, it's not um, sort of deconstructivist in the the kind of showy way that uh, John Barth or William Gaddis or somebody like that shows you the sort of the gears and the mechanics. Well, I mean, it starts and it ends, and you are aware that what is opening up is a pure story. There's an important moment early on where we sort of very elegantly get in touch with the narrator's unreliability when he. He begins to tell us a story about picking up a homeless guy off the street and taking him out to lunch or a meal. When they go to a meal and the sort of scene sort of fragments and crumbles and breaks into shards. Um, and that, I think, was a nice sort of effective way of um, kind of letting you sink into the irreality of what follows. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, second that non-warning, I guess. I mean, to me, like, the book sort of had a very much like a, a memento-like propulsion to it. You know, this sort of guy, you know, obsessed with some vague event in the past and sort of, you know, desperately rearranging his world to kind of, you know, get back at something. And so I, so I, it's almost there's a kind of a detective, you know, story quality, uh, you know, to the story that that, that carried me through. And then, you know, not to be too much of a, of a spoiler, but, you know, it has, you know, a bank robbery or, or uh, you know, it very much goes into the, the realm of the real and the, and the, the um, you know, kind of straight ahead, old fashioned uh, uh, narrative excitement. Um, what, what did you think of the book, Megan? Did you, oh, you, you, I love uh, this book. Yeah. I think it's just, um, yeah. I think it's brilliant and funny and absurd and serious and invigorating and all of those things at, at the same time and, and really unexpected. Um, I felt like it was just different from anything I had read in a while yeah. and yet not at the same time. And, and someone had given it to me who said, oh, this book is just, you know, who said that this book is utterly unlike anything you will have read in a while. And with that approach to it, I thought, well, this book isn't that unlike anything I've read. Right? <laughs> but um, but I think that what McCarthy is trying to do is is to draw attention to and, and deconstruct, as I said, the sort of the, the kinds of stories we tell ourselves about the world and to kind of um, it's an anti-romantic novel in a, in a sense, right? It's not about kind of, even though it's preoccupied with authenticity, it's not, doesn't ultimately get us to a place where the, the narrator kind of achieves that authenticity. There's a propulsion where you, where you feel from the beginning, he keeps having the tingling. He has these moments. I love the Freud deja vu and the sort of idea that it's a fantasy that you're trying to enter because I think that is what this whole novel is about. There's a sort of fantasy that we're trying to enter, which is this, this feeling of wholeness, right? This feeling of authenticity, this feeling of naturalness. Remember what it was like to walk there's um there's a great moment after he's told us that he had to relearn how to walk and he talks about you have to reroute all the signals in your brain and learn how to mimic each movement and he says all everything i do now is secondhand and he's watching uh, mean streets with his friend and he looks at robert de niro and he's like robert de niro is flaccid and uh 
and as opposed to plastic, which is rigid, right? And there's there's sort of, kind of a naturalness to De Niro's movement, and that's what he's looking for, right? Is that sense of naturalness? And it seems to me that that's what the whole novel is doing. You know, on the meta level, that's what the novel is kind of talking about too, right? That we're in this belated moment where we're looking for a kind of naturalness, a non-self-conscious way of writing, telling stories, and inhabiting that romantic vision, but we can't, or he can't. That's that's what I sort of took away. Um, on the meta level. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me read a bit and sort of yeah. uh, ground my abstractions here. Yeah. Um, yeah. To flip back to the the moment when he's walking out of Mean Streets, uh, he writes. The other thing that struck me as we watched the film was how perfect De Niro was. Every movie made, each gesture was perfect, seamless. Whether it was lighting up a cigarette or opening a fridge door or just walking down the street, he seemed to execute the action perfectly, to live it, to merge with it until he was it, and it was him, and there was nothing in between. I commented on this to Greg as we walked back, as we walked back to mine. Huh. I hadn't noticed that. I hadn't noticed it either, actually. <laughs> Hmm. I wonder if that's deliberate. Um, yeah, it seems a little like a typo almost. Uh, should be my apartment or something. Um, so he, Maybe not. he uh, continuing later in this conversation, he says, um, I mean, he's relaxed, malleable. He flows into his movements, even the most basic ones, opening fridge doors, lighting cigarettes. He doesn't have to think about them or understand them first. He doesn't have to think about them because he and they are one, perfect, real. My movements are all fake, secondhand. And we're going to juxtapose that with sort of a passage two pages later where he's at uh, Heathrow Airport and um, watching people disembark from planes. Some of the arriving passengers scanned the waiting faces for relatives, but most weren't being met. These ones came out carrying some kind of regard to show to the assembled crowd some facial disposition they'd struck up just before the door slid open for them. They might be trying to look hurried, as though they were urgently needed because they were very important and their business couldn't run without them. Or they might look carefree, innocent, and happy, as though unaware that 50 or 60 pairs of eyes were focused on them, just on them, if only for two seconds. Which, of course, they weren't. Unaware, I mean. How could you be? Reading the... Well, for one thing, I... uh, those two passages go uh, towards McCarthy's skill at making the um, sort of making the strange familiar and the familiar strange, which again feels uh, all the more easy and natural because it sort of comports with the with the narrator's situation. For another, it reminds me of that line that uh, sort of actors fall back on, uh, which is that um, you know people performing on stage or in a movie are sort of being themselves and it is we in real life who are the actors yeah it's also interesting because I think that one of the things I wanted to talk about was it seems that this narrator on one level becomes a stand-in for us right this accident allows him to become obsessed with the kinds of thoughts that perhaps we've all had and we recognize, right? That feeling of being secondhand, the feeling of the, the, the crack feeling, which you basically just had yourself, Troy, right? We have these feelings and the, the device of the accident and this derangement to his brain and having to relearn everything allows McCarthy very, very naturally, very fluidly, and I think just kind of beautifully to let that become the main preoccupation of the book. As you said, Troy, it's not really plotted so much as patterned. And it's this is a character who's obsessed with finding patterns and relearning patterns. But one of the questions I had about the book is he believes, as he says here in this passage you just read, that 
no one can be unaware, right? That that everyone is in this predicament to to some degree. Well, there's actually a paradox there because on the one hand, De Niro isn't, right? But then as he looks around the world, he's always finding kind of flaws in the patterns, and it seems like everyone else is part of that flaw too. Does that make sense? I mean, maybe I should go back and say that. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, that's a good like. When, what could we identify as like the the moments where you know authenticity kind of leaks into this? into this narrative i mean is it like when the you know when the when the black guy gets gunned down on his motorcycle i mean uh, on his bicycle i mean that seems to be sort of when he reenacts that particular scenario he you know that's when he feels like you know he's entered i don't know you know some moment of of non-self-consciousness for him where did you find the the, i think also it's that the moments of authenticity are matters of chance even the initial sort of accident that motivates the story um, is a case of his being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Just now when you mentioned that, I thought of um, one of the incidents that he has reenacted involved um, this uh, weird thing with his car where the the wiper fluid kind of explodes through the dashboard and onto his pants. Um, I think that that's the real moment. I think that you know, in life is the are the moments that we're most ourselves are. Yeah, no, in, in life, yeah. The, in life, perhaps maybe the the moments when we're most ourselves are those when we are caught off guard. And that 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 moment is really important because right before that, the guy has poured in the wiper fluid and it's, it seems to have disappeared. It seems almost like a kind of Christ disappearing from the right. It's like becomes a <laughs> so symbol for transubstantiation. Yeah, yeah. Right, it disappears, and he thinks this is actually you know. Um, I don't don't think he uses the word magical. I can't find the passage here. But there's this kind of sense of disbelief. Wait, something has actually – it's one of the preoccupations that the, the protagonist has is this question of matter, right? He says in the end of the first, par, um, first chapter that his problem, his undoing was matter, right? This messy, irksome matter that had no respect for millions that didn't know its place. And that's actually what happens, right? The, the, wipe, the windshield wiper fluid seems to disappear and then it actually – and he's all – kind of a flutter with this sense of, oh, there's something has happened, and then, boom, it spills out right all over him, and it is this moment of authenticity. But let's talk about the reenactments a little bit. What how, what are these reenactments, and what are, how are they functioning? Well, in the, in I was the wondering if you guys, like like me, I, I eventually got extremely annoyed by the reenactments. I just felt like, you know, they kept... Like, and I think that was deliberate on McCarthy's part. It's just like he kept everything that happened to kind of, you know, he's like, oh, well, let's reenact that. You know, it, it kind of it's kind of just builds and builds and builds and builds. And um, so I, I don't know. I just wanted to know if you, if you, if you guys felt like the, the repetition was just a little – how did that work for you? And I'm also curious, like we haven't talked about his kind of enabler throughout all of this, this guy mm-hmm. – uh, you know, he kind of hooks hooks up with this sort of high end um, celebrity services take care of everything firm. A facilitator. A facilitator. Thank Nasrul you. Ram Vyas. I don't know how. I yeah, would say and this. so Nas's project is to kind of you know make all the enactments happen, and he, you know, so he's kind of approaching the world from a different perspective as our protagonist. You know, he's trying to kind of you know engineer it, um, you know, down to the the last detail. So. Sorry, I'll just try to hope, hopefully expand upon your question and, mm. you know, just kind of say, yeah, throw it back over to Troy, you know, and sort of, were you annoyed by the reenactments and what do you think of the facilitator? Mm-hmm. Maybe perhaps 
around page 160 or so, I sort of sped my pace of reading through these reenactments. <laughs> I don't think the book would have, would be quite as successful without them, however. They're, they're sort of essential to establishing a certain pace and a tone. Although I suppose it is true that you don't get, as in a, as in a Rob Grier novel, the sort of sense that things are developing it wasn't actually the reenactments. I was fascinated by the reenactments. Mm-hmm. I felt like I could have read about the reenactments forever. In fact, the more particular the reenactment, the more interested I was. I was a little bit surprised that the novel went in the direction of making the reenactments larger and more dramatic and, and uh, more cinematic, right? More like a you mentioned a bank robbery. M- many very dramatic things happen at the end of this book. And I guess one question we have is, should we discuss them? Yeah, we, have to, we have to do the spoiler because it's right. so important to the book. So, okay. so yeah. we, should, we should mention that there's a spoiler. But, but um, so here comes spoilers. But yeah, I mean, the reenactments go from being these kind of obsessive preoccupations with reenacting a crack, right, in the wall and how that looked. That stuff I was fascinated with to uh, bank robbery and ultimately murder and and goes up. I don't know who, who wants to well, describe let's do, the reenactments. Let's, let's do so, the so bank. I got impatient with that element of it because okay. I thought, really, do we have to go here? Do we have to go to the kind of explosive, over the top? And then, of course, I think it's inevitable that he did. I mean, this is this is the, that's a really important part of the novel that McCarthy makes the choices to go with the reenactments where he goes, and that part of the novel started to seem makes you circle back to this whole question of the settlement and what happens and the question posed by what happens when someone is granted extraordinary power through being given a huge sum of money almost randomly and accidentally, right? Which is the money is the precipitating factor for everything that happens here. Um, yeah, the money sort of, yeah, kind of, you know, he his life already has this artificiality because he's sort of relearning everything and then, you know, it kind of the money is just like a, it's almost like a joke. It just removes any sort of motive uh, for you know to kind of you know get a job. Or, you know, there's no sort of foundation for this guy anymore. You know, he's just he's out there floating. Um, but you know, I think the, the the thing about the bank robbery that we should mention, and, and this is definitely a spoiler, so is that you know they they he and Nas, the protagonist and Nas, set up this plan to to reenact a bank robbery, and then they you know they eventually decide to take it to the next level, which is that they will know. That the bank robbery is real, but the reenactor reenactors will not. So they're going to rob a real bank with reenactors who and think it's just a reenactment. Who think it's just like a, the moves that they have done before. And there's this wonderful scene in the car when they're waiting in the car outside the bank. I wonder if we should we should read that. Uh, I think we could also mention that the, the narrative starts to fragment there, and his sense of. You know, his gra- one of the questions the book raises is the question of reality. We might say his grasp of reality starts to really disintegrate there, but that raises <laughs> right. all sorts of questions about, well, what was the reality that we were experiencing earlier in the book and what was his reality and what's our relationship to the reality being created by his narration, right? Right. But, Michael? Well, okay. yes, that's... I think it would be in keeping with the sort of the spirit of the book if instead of uh, editing out what just happened, we... <laughs> <laughs> we just left it in? Yeah. Should we reenact it? <laughs> no. We could just well, start over. <laughs> let me just read this passage, because I, I think, uh, yeah, this sort of... I like this part, and I think, you know, we've been talking about McCarthy abstractly, but especially in, in this book, and I think in the, the next one, if we, we get to it, see, you know, he's, he, he is, his, his talent for description is, is, is this big strength, I think. But um, 
Anyway, so they're waiting in the cars. Uh, I want to, to say what page we're on. Oh, on page 282. To start then from the moment, the long, stretched-out moment during which we waited, set in our positions for it to begin, to start again, we sat, seven of us, six robber reenactors and two drivers in two cars, one parked on each side of the street outside the bank. We sat in silence, waiting. The other reenactors in my car looked through the windows, fascinated, watching shoppers, businessmen, mothers with pushchairs and traffic wardens walking up and down the pavement, entering and leaving shops, crossing the road, milling around at bus stops. They watched them intently, looking for cracks in their personas, inconsistencies in their dress, the way they moved and so on, that might show them up as the reenactors they'd been told they were. Their eyes followed these people round corners, trying to spot the reenactment zone's edge. They'd been told that the zone would be wide and not demarcated as clearly as the shooting ones had been, that its edges would be blurred, buffered by side and back streets as they merged gradually, almost imperceptibly with real space. They'd been told this, but they still looked for some kind of boundary. So I just, yeah, I just thought that was very cool, this kind of, you know, that... Can I just read the next sentence, too? Because then he goes on to say, I watched, too, with the same fascination. I stared amazed at the passers-by, their postures, their joints articulation as they moved. They were all doing it just right, standing, moving, everything, and this without even knowing they were doing it, which seems like kind of the capstone to that great, yeah. great passage you just read. So, yeah, should we return to kind of your question, which is like, you know, the level of the the narrative construction of the of the book itself and you know our trust in it and I mean you know I mean you know, McCarthy is playing on that level on that level too because um, there is this kind of David Lynchian character that appears this this short counselor you know who we, we're not really sure who's if he's real or or not and he seems to be a projection of the protagonist's imagination so you know things start falling apart yeah he's yeah. also sort of the sort of the first serious voice of sort of skepticism in the <laughs> right like what's going on here yeah. as right. as as the character is beginning to make these things happen and uh when, as the facilitator is facilitating, there are these uh, interior decorators who storm out because they don't want to be told to create this imagined space exactly. And there are these uh, sort of performers and actors who sort of don't get the idea. But these are mere. See, I was kind of with the short counselor. I mean, I mean, don't you, I mean, ultimately, like with this book, I'm kind of like, well, you know, what's the takeaway? Like, we okay, so we're you know. Here's a guy who can't really, you know, process that you can be both, you know, fluid and natural, yet also have moments of, you know, feeling of doubt and self-constructed. You kind of can't live with this paradox that, like, you know, you're, you know, you we all kind of make up ourselves as as we go along. And and I don't know. I just I just when I when I read these books, I'm like, is that a useful road to go on? Yeah, you know, it's kind of there lies madness if you kind of, you know, obsessively contemplate every action. I mean, um, well, I think it's maybe important mm-hmm. to note that. So on page two hundred ninety nine, the the protagonist, the, the culmination of all this, in or what would be the culmination in a different kind of novel. In a strange way, it's almost not quite the culmination. Here is he ends up shooting people, right? He ends up becoming, if we're to trust the narration, he ends up murdering people in this whole obsessive pursuit of um, simulacrums. He ends up actually taking life away. And so uh, let me just read quickly page 299. 
the numbers are referring to different robber reenactors whom he's hired. And he says, two was as far from me as four had been from him when he too had shot him four in the bank. He was still moving forward, lumbering toward me. So I shot him. It was half instinctive, a reflex, as I'd first suspected, to tug against the last solid thing there was, which was the trigger, tug against it as though it were a fixed point that the body could could be pulled back up from. But I'd be lying if I said it was only that that made me pull the trigger and shoot too. I did it because I wanted to. Seeing him standing there in Four's position as I stood in his, replaying in first my mind and then my body his slow fall, I'd felt the same compulsion to shoot him as I'd felt outside Victoria Station that day to ask passers-by for change. Essentially, it was the movements, the positions, and the tingling that made me do it. Nothing more. So we come to this moment that is can't be reenacted, right, in yeah. some sense. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because that single person is no longer there. And uh, were you expecting this this trajectory for the book? What what did you make of reaching reaching murder, I suppose? I mean, it makes as much sense for it to go as anywhere else. Because the guy's affect is so flat, there's only sort of so much emotional development that's going to happen and because of his isolation uh, you know there's not going to be any sort of interpersonal drama by the same token um not a love story yeah (laughs) Uh, and i do like a good heist (laughs) Um, (laughs) i do like a good heist uh and so it works with a with a book that is patterned and you know the book is about plans and the fun of a heist narrative is in the sort of the planning and watching the um, sort of the execution. It's sort of um, I don't know. I like the sort of process-oriented nature of it. Uh, and then a, a violent conclusion, although it's I, uh, I, I see Michael's point that it's a bit abrupt. Yeah, he's so without, you know, he's so detached and um, you know I read when I when the murderer goes down in the airplane hang or you know the airport wherever it happens you know that was sort of I, I felt like McCarthy was kind of you know passing judgment on this character like you know like we've been in the mind of a psychopath you know I, I actually kind of liked it I thought like oh well you know like oh we're, he's kind of like involved in these like cool reenactment projects it, it feels very like kind of pomo and like almost like he's an artist and then he's like but then like you know he kind of gradually edges into kind of a, a mania a controlling mania and then and this kind of you know having it you know spin out into actual death and and you know the the death isn't really important that important it's like the creepy thing he does where he's kind of like he's like sticks his fingers in the wound and it's like oh it's spongy and you know kind of is obsessed with like the, the matter of death you know here like this incontrovertible in, in fact that you know he's uh he's he's produced this effect in the world it had been a Don DeLillo novel and then it became American Psycho <laughs> that's not quite right but <laughs> yeah no, well there but, is like yeah. it's, it's amoral right mm-hmm. we're not in a moral universe it's sort of like an ambient universe it's like that sleepwalking state you feel <laughs> have you ever like woken up on ambient and realized that you sort of have no I don't know it seems like it's a world without morals and that's oh. kind of the world <laughs> I don't mean that in a, remind I mean, me not to say hello to you in morning <laughs> I mean there's like no affect I mean there's no affect and nothing exciting happened to me trust me I like reorganized some piles of books but um, but I just remember when I woke up I was like oh that was like a feeling of living in a world without affect somehow yeah. and that seems a little bit like kind of in like curiously 
at once curious and incurious, right, about the world, like deeply curious about matter and the objects, objectivity of things. And, you know, it's a, it, it has literary precedence, I think, probably in The Stranger or in, you know, or even Raskolnikov in some ways, right? But it's different. You're making a face at me, Troy. Uh, no, 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 no. It's 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 uh, a face of comprehension and understanding. Uh, it also reminded me of despair of Nabokov's mm-hmm. despair, mm-hmm. Um, in which uh, you know a narrator very precisely leads us into weird terrain. Yeah, I've never read Despair, but now I'm going. Now I want to read like a whole series. Check it of, out. Of and in as much as it's about doubles, that it. Uh, Makes a good pair with this book. Also, in the course of this discussion, uh, I was reminded of uh, Charlie Kaufman's Connectedy New York. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. It's a movie that's more interesting than it is good. It, it stars. Um, oh, Synecdoche, the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yes. Did sorry. I mispronounce it? Synecdoche? I, I thought you said Schenectady. Isn't that a city in New York? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, Can you, like, take the train there or something? <laughs> like, what? But, go um, ahead. but go ahead. No, I was just, it's about. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays this theater director who gets a, a grant and then sort of starts creating this sort of installation piece where he's uh, people are acting in a world and it keeps building out sort of fractally and so he's then needs to duplicate the sort of process of himself working on it so he hires an act actors to like play himself and his assistant um i love that movie <laughs> yeah and it reminded me i thought of that too reading this because you become very confused about what's real and what's not yeah watching this may be the moment to note in fact that remainder i think was optioned as a movie in britain i mean you were talking earlier michael about kind of escalating the bank robbery heist mm-hmm. and but also to note that tom mccarthy you know sort of has identified in a self-conscious way, right, as an avant-garde artist, as part of this. um, He was the general secretary of something called the International Necronautical Society, or the INS, uh, which is a semi-fictitious avant-garde network. And this book was first published or sort of disseminated through gallery, almost as an art project, right, through galleries and otherwise, rather than through the what we might call traditional mainstream publishing. Um, It was later picked up, I think years later, picked up by Vintage here and published as a as a book. And so that's sort of interesting to think about too is the modes of transmission of um, of this text, as it were, and how that affects what does that affect how you think about the book at all? I mean for me, I guess because I had received it as a book, I just read it as a book and then later discovered that it had been conceptualized rather differently. But I don't know where I'm going with this. Yeah, no, I, no, I, no, I agree. Like, yeah, it's like if you had been like slipped this book in an in an art gallery, um, you know, I think framed in that way, uh, you know, the kind of you might be more attuned to kind of like the you know the mind blowing qualities of it. I guess you know, where it's like as opposed to just kind of the the cold hard is this a good story well and i guess yeah. and the, what seems to be this kind of implicit what you know you, if, as a social conservative i suppose you could read this book and s- detect it find in it or create for oneself a critique of kind of the culture of um you know endless reproduction of things right television and so on and so forth like there's all this sort of simulacra you know reproductions reenactments that leads the main character to become dissociated from reality and, and kill somebody but of course that's not actually what happens it doesn't actually lead him to do it right the accident has already happened there's a some profound disconnect. So there's not a there's not a necessarily narrative consequence to the reenactments or anything. Um, but instead, I think all of the reenactments and all of the this 
this what a lot of what the narrator the, the protagonist is trying to do is to hold in mind the simultaneity of events, right? The ways in which he's connected to other things in the world. And, and early on, before he starts to use his money to do the reenactments, he um, is visited by this girl, Catherine. This is the aborted love story in the book, right? The novel that might have been where this is a different. She comes, they've had this sort of sexual tension for months, and he's been fantasizing about what might happen when she arrives. And instead, he just becomes annoyed with her. Um, but she's a kind of do-gooder who has worked in Africa, and she says you should create a fund that would basically you know, help help people. And he says, well, how would I see it? Um, something like, something to that effect. Yeah. And he wants to see it. And she says, well, why does it matter if you can see it? And he says, he says he can't explain it to her, but he has this feeling, right, that he would have to be able to see what it was doing. Um, and there's a lot of moments like that where he's trying to hold in mind grids and networks. And in that sense, the book seemed also to and be... that's a good point. That drives his investment strategy, right. too. Mm-hmm. You know, like he needs to kind of see and contemplate it. And uh, so, yeah, sort of a... He's kind of a locavore of the of the mind, I guess. Or we're trying to deal with the the kind of um, it's not a, it's, it's almost like the epistemological question of like we know that there are things that we can't see in the world. You know, we know that Africa exists. We know that these other things are happening. We know this money is being wired to us. But where does it? come from and where does it go and even the accident is like that too right like where does the accident come from it's falling stuff what fell why did it fall is someone to blame there's a settlement but we're the the story is remarkably uninterested in any of that right that's just yeah. the beginning point right i don't know there's a period early on when he's sort of sorting out what he's going to do with all this money and so he kind of thinks about ph- philanthropy but decides that there are no causes that he's especially interested in as friend, a friend of his wants him to spend it all on drugs and hookers. You know, this idea that uh, money is important because of the way it makes you feel in spending it and what you spend it on. Um, and I think he's spending it kind of trying to feel something, right? And is it uh, kind of moments of freedom from self-consciousness? Am I on the right path? Am I, on the... I think it is, yeah. Well, maybe should we take the the kind of leap into materiality with with the next book? The kind of you know we we leave the disembodied um, self consciousness of remainder, or, or, or we could or, do that. Um, we only have a couple more minutes, uh, okay. so we're not going to be able to go too much into C. But we we should. But maybe we should just talk about or read the very last paragraph of remainder and talk about that because okay. he does actually feel happy at the end of this book. Um, does someone want to read the last paragraph? I'll read the last paragraph. Um, I looked out of the window again. I felt really happy. We passed through a small cloud. The cloud, seen from inside like this, was gritty, like spilled earth or dust flakes in a stairwell. Eventually the sun would set forever, burn out, pop, extinguish, and the universe would run down like a Fisher-Price toy as spring is unwound to its very end. Then there'd be no more music, no more loops. Or maybe, before that, we'd just run out of fuel. For now, though, the clouds tilted and the weightlessness set in once more as we banked, turning, heading back again. I think he steals a move from the end of The Great Gatsby in that. The, co- the boat's beating. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Which is a good Gatsby. move to steal. It's a good move to steal. It's interesting because Gatsby is such huh, a different novel. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so we do arrive at this kind of moment of happiness and weightlessness, and that does seem to be, as you were saying, Troy, a kind of freedom. He's being born from... backwards into the past. He's no. he's trapped in this kind of circuit that's yeah. pleasurable to him. Like that, like I didn't. Loop. I can yeah, please explain the end to me because it's uh, just a little bit of a setup. You know, he he's pointing a gun at the the, the pilot who's been commanded to go back to the to return the plane back to the hangar or whatever and but but instead he's just he's commanded the pilot to go back and forth back and forth on this right. kind of so what so what was your reading of, of the end megan well, well i I, uh, I think that you know what what the the kind of the romantic hero the the humanist hero of the novel if if we were reading a different book right i keep setting this up against a kind of ant- supposed other kind of novel we might be reading, I guess partly because of having read Zadie Smith's piece, that that character would feel, or in a movie, right, that character would feel despair and they're trapped and, and you know, dog day afternoon, that sense of like, oh, this there's sort of kind of tragedy and the antihero is being caught and we don't want them to be caught, or just that sense of having to fend it off. But for him, he doesn't feel that. He just gets <laughs> absorbed almost like a child or a drugged, I guess that's why I brought up the ambient, like yeah. a drugged person in the the sensation it's there's a kind of way in which it's fascinating because on the one hand he's always trying to live in some other moment and yet a lot of the time this character lives in the present in the sensation of the present in a way that people find very difficult i think and so i thought that that was part of what was happening here was that we're just we're kind of we're, we as readers are becoming worried for him what's going to happen what's going to happen and rather than getting what was going to happen we get stuck in this moment and this as you so I think eloquently put it Michael this kind of circuit this loop that's pleasurable to him and we're that end that we expect is is we don't get and so we don't know literally what happens but this is what is happening well this is his goal is to like achieve that that. loop um, and sort of infinitely extend the present which is why it's Mm. so disconcerting Um, yeah there's a bit the um, sort of foreshadowing this of this the foreshadowing of this early on uh, is when he's, he's forgotten something and he needs to keep returning home and uh, talks about turning this figure eight pattern mm-hmm. with its sort of infinite loop. Yes, which we see at the beginning. Well, we're, we are about to be out of time. So, um, Michael, I think you want to talk about C, so we should just jump forward for a moment. Do you want to just talk for a second about that book? Because it's very different in some ways from, from this book. Well, yeah. I will. It just, yeah. It's you Did know. Would you like talking, it? Would you recommend it? I guess we could. We could. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's fascinating. So I read C first, and then I you know I jumped back into Remainder, and you you wouldn't think they were written by the same author almost. I mean, so you know, C is this kind of drops you into like a, a, a Mason and Dixon uh, pension like setting. You know, there's kind of these lots of antiquated nouns, and uh, um, you know, we're dealing with experiments and t- t- what early tele- I say tele- telegraphy I guess would be the word <laughs> um, and so anyway so yeah the guy who kind of you know dropped this sort of avant-garde art gallery type you know experimental fiction you know kind of returns with a very kind of dense materialist um, historical novel but that with a also with a kind of detached narrator Right, I mean, so I guess that's the connection between the two. But um, you know, I thought there was some. I thought C has some some kind of powerful stuff in it. I know, you know, reactions have been mixed, but I really thought like the the war. I, I thought it was a great war novel, uh, or the war episodes were really really good. 
to kind of just keep rambling on here. He was, mm. you know, it's, he's a, so this is World War One, not World War Two, um, and uh, the main character, this guy Serge, uh, is it Carfax, I believe, um, is. You know, so it's it's the it's kind of the, the very when airplanes are kind of first introduced into the the battlefield and and um, you know just kind of these you know lots of great details. You know, for example, like airplanes didn't really shoot at each other. This kind of like they were originally just for observation. Um, you know, you kind of like fly by and wave at your enemy. And um, anyway, so it, it's this kind of. Um, yeah, again, I th- McCarthy has these kind of great descriptions of what it's like to be under bombardment, and the, and um, you know has kind of a, a, lyr- a pension like lyricism. I think um, you know sort of wonderful to sort of reread paragraphs. But you know, unlike I guess Remainder, I I, I had a little trouble figuring out what it all added up up to. Um, but what were your guys' in- impressions of C? I couldn't finish it. <laughs> um, it, it yeah, it was like yeah. cement, and the cement has been very nicely, <laughs> nicely laid. Um, but, uh, you know, it shares with remainder that kind of attention to detail in the yeah. in the opening chapters. We're getting these very precise uh, descriptions of like landscape architecture and sort of what what happens in um, you know dealing with mulberry bushes and silk. But I don't. It's uh, I think. And perhaps it's attributable to the kind of adoption of this period voice is that it feels sort of overwritten and it's sort of uh, like a little bit clinical, a little bit of uh, like it's proceeding at a murmur as opposed to the the kind of clean, spruce sentences of Remainder. Yes, Remainder is clipped and C is sort of an overgrown... Uh you know, folly a little, right? Right. Um, but which has its true pleasures. I mean, one thing I just want to say is I love McCarthy's sense of humor. And there's a lot of wit in both books, and it's sort of subtle and funny, but it's present. And often one doesn't find humor in the avant-garde, right? Um, certain kinds of avant-garde works. I don't know. Those, those Alipo guys crack me up. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Read Harry Maybe that's not true. Oh no, Harry Matthews. Okay, I take it back. I take it totally back. Maybe I've just been reading. Maybe what is it? All right, I take that back utterly. Oh, Harry Matthews is great. Harry Matthews is very funny too. All right. Well, we actually need to come to a close. And uh, any last comments, thoughts, um, reenactment, reenact. I'm going to leave thinking about what, if anything, remainder has to say about rereading. That is all. Yes, I will. I will gratefully reenact my rereading of Remainder with your thoughts. In my <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, you know, it's, it's like uh, we should do t- Tony Morrison's idea. You can't read a book; you can only reread it. And so, what does kind of the the reengagement of you know? So you're when you read a book for the second time, you're what are you doing? Are you reenacting your experience, or is there this kind of like folly that you're going to? feel precisely what you felt the sort of the first time I mean I I suppose I'm talking about reading for pleasure as opposed to studying something but I think it is like deja vu right it's like you get these glimpses of what you what you were doing and where you were when you read before but you're actually in a different place and you're sort of trying it's a fascinating question because are you trying to recapture or are you re-experiencing there's a triangulation with the old self the book and the new self too well put. Hmm. Well, I don't know about that. 
But thank you all for joining us. Thank you, too, for joining me today for our discussion of Remainder. Our next audiobook club will be a reenactment of this discussion. We will be discussing Remainder, rereading Remainder. Actually, we should. I wish we were. Probably we will not be doing that. But join us next time for our next book to be determined. And for Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke.